Hey everybody, it's Bobby from Growler Media. We had some issues with the audio for episode 39, so while we get that figured out, we decided to go ahead and release a special episode where Sally, our researcher, and Carrie from the LDS Dating Podcast talk about Beast's Hero's Journey. And when we get the audio sorted out, we will release episode 39 along with next week's normal episode. Thank you guys. That's a growler. Welcome to Beauty and the Beastly Minute, a special edition. I'm Sally, the researcher. And I'm Carrie from the LDS Dating Podcast. And I'm very excited today to be able to share some of my own thoughts about Beauty and the Beast. My experience with Beauty and the Beast is really cool. It's the first movie that I can remember seeing as a little girl. I was about six years old when it came out in theaters. I remember begging my mom to go to Pizza Hut to get all the puppets because that was the way Pizza Hut and Beauty and the Beast and Disney worked together back then was you could get these really cool plastic Beauty and the Beast puppets. And Beauty and the Beast has just been my absolutely favorite fairy tale ever since. As I've gotten older and you know, went into college and studying uh, English literature and fairy tales, uh, it was really cool to dive a little bit deeper into why things like Beauty and the Beast work so well even today. As I got older, it was really cool studying fairy tales, myths, and legends from a literature standpoint, and I'm very excited to bring some of that experience into looking at Beauty and the Beast. Uh, I am here today with Carrie. So I'm Carrie. I'm Bobby's wife. He's one of the main podcasters of the Beauty and the Beastly Minute, and I just kind of come on for these special episodes. I've been on an episode or two with Bobby and Janae where... I just kind of come in with my own input. I have watched Beauty and the Beast, so I'm qualified to give an observer's an observer's idea of all these different things and I'll just be discussing these deeper themes with Sally that that we find interesting and we hope that you guys really enjoy these episodes. I'm very glad that Carrie's doing this with me. She and I are actually sisters, fun fact. So, we might get a little bit I don't know, sisterly in some of our conversations, but it should be fun to listen to anyway, I think. We hope. Today, something that I've really wanted to get deeper into as I've listened to the podcast with Bobby and Janae and I've done research for them is the really cool aspects uh, of Beauty and the Beast in relationship to something called the hero's journey. Now, anyone who has studied English literature or ancient folklore and myths has probably come across the phrase hero's journey. It was popularized in the 1950s, I believe, by a gentleman named Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell believed that if you went back far enough and looked at all the different myths and legends from multiple cultures, then you would start to see a pattern that basically every story out there uh, is part of what's called a monomyth, so a singular myth. And from a psychology standpoint, he believed that people had sort of this shared awareness of what made a good story and a shared pattern that it didn't matter if you were in Africa talking to uh, native tribes there, or if you went over to France and spoke to the Gaelic, you know, wise men back in the day, or if you went across to the native American people in North and South America, 
He believed you you would see this pattern emerge everywhere, and he was very successful in uh, writing about this and, and proving it using multiple sources, multiple myths and legends. Something interesting that not everyone might know is that there was a young man who read Joseph Campbell's works and thought they were brilliant, and then he decided to base an entire movie series around this idea, and that young man was George Lucas, and uh, Star Wars is almost exact pattern of Campbell's work, of what the monomyth is, of, of this pattern that will prove to make a successful story that will last through the ages, that will get to people psychologically. Now, Star Wars, as you know, was popular in the late 70s and early 80s when a gentleman by the name of Christopher Vogler saw Star Wars and he recognized the pattern and he was a little bit familiar with Joseph Campbell's work. So then Vogler dived deeper into Campbell and came up with his own uh, way to explain this this monomyth, this this. Um, this psychological pattern that is found in all successful stories. Of course, we know Star Wars was very successful and George Lucas was very successful in using this. Well, Vogler saw the success and he, at the time that he was seeing all of this and doing this research, actually worked for Disney. Mm. Interesting, huh? Yeah, did not know all this. Yeah, so Vogler worked for Disney, and he was what they call one of their story men. And this is a position that was very unique to Disney that Walt Disney himself created. And Walt Disney was the first story man at Disney. And it's the story man's job to put together the story that they want to tell on his head and know all the parts, pieces, and how they should go together. Then this story man comes out and explains to the script writers and all the artists what the story is and how it should go. Of course, there will be changes, you know, after he after he does this, but it really is his job to keep track of the whole story and make sure it, it fits well together. Make sure everyone follows the story the way it's supposed to be going. It, exactly. And keep track of all the details, you know, and come back later and say, you know, this isn't working. Let's try this instead. But that, that was Vogler's job. And he worked very closely with many of the people who were bigwigs in Disney back in the 1980s, like Eisner. You know, we all know that name, Michael Eisner. So when Vogler was working for Disney and doing this cool research and learning more about Joseph Campbell and this monomyth, he came up with this idea of his called the Hero's Journey Outline. And he issued a memo and it went all over Disney like wildfire. And Disney took one look at this, you know, all the people at Disney, excuse me, took a look at this and it changed the way that Disney started telling their stories. Because previous to this, you had stories like, you know, the first rescues down under and uh, the fox and the hound. And, you know, they were good stories, but they weren't as popular or as lucrative as the early stories of Snow White and Cinderella and things were. So when this memo was issued, it, it changed the way that the people at Disney started telling their stories again. I, I believe The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast are probably the first examples of that major change. I know in the, the, the article you sent me to read before this episode that it said The Lion King was one of them that they used this hero's journey stages and they kind of worked through on The Lion King and The Lion King has these stages. Yeah, in the Lion King, it's very obvious and very, uh, very clear. But the the memo was distributed previous to the Lion King. It was distributed, I believe, in about nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine. So it was starting to make some headway at that point through the various uh, departments in Disney. Okay, so it had already really like dissolved its way into Disney by the time the Lion King was in the work. Right. Uh, 
when you read Vogler's story, which we'll, we'll link to the page that I sent Carrie that has a whole bunch of these cool articles. But when you read Vogler's story, he started getting really, um, really noticed, you know, right around the time of The Lion King. That's when it became mandatory reading for everyone to get this memo from Vogler. And at that point, he had published a whole book on this theory of the monomyth and the hero's journey. Uh, so Lion King, yeah, definitely hardcore. You can see it in Lion King. But if you look at the the theory and the journey around Be- Mer- Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, and you know that it was out there floating around in Disney at that time, you can kind of sort of see how they started to, to plug in the pieces. Carrie and I discussed this a little bit beforehand, plugging the pieces, and it can be difficult sometimes to do this. So today, I would like to discuss a little bit about how the beast fits into this hero's journey pattern. And the reason I think we can discuss him as a possible hero is because he really is the protagonist of the story, or one of them. It's rare that you get multiple protagonists, but I think you could fairly say that the beast is a protagonist, as is Belle. And we will discuss Belle at another time. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good. Okay. Now, the hero's journey can be divided into stages, and I believe there are 12 stages. The first one that I would like to discuss is called the ordinary world. Now, as a description of what this stage is, uh, it's fairly simple. Think about when you're watching a movie or reading a book. You usually don't dive right into the middle of the action. You're usually opening up on what is normal for this character, you know, what their day-to-day life is about. And so the ordinary world uh, is the stage that shows, you know, what's what's been going on? What's 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 this character up to? Who are they? And it just kind of gives you a little brief intro, a glimpse into their normal life. And so my understanding of this for the Beauty and the Beast is it is that opening narration where they're coming through the forest and the narrator is talking about how the prince is spoiled and just kind of that opening narration. Is that our introduction to the Beast's ordinary world? I would say so, absolutely, where you get that that glimpse into who he was before the curse. You almost have to look at the beast's journey through this hero cycle uh, in two ways, both just what we see in the movie and then what we know about his life before. So his before, his ordinary world is when he was a prince. I think you could also say that once the movie starts and, you know, once Belle is introduced later, that his ordinary world has become being this cursed beast, this cursed creature roaming about his castle. But for the purposes of this this podcast, I will say that, yes, I mean, it's it was his ordinary life was the life of a prince. Okay, so, so his ordinary world was as a prince, like, I know that Bobby and Janae have talked about all these different theories of, you know, is he alone? Are his parents even with him anymore? He's called a prince, so technically we know he's not the king yet. So we assume that he has parents in the beginning. You would. Like when he had when he had the curse thrust upon him. Yes. Now here's the thing about European royalty that I think we as Americans don't always understand. But in European royalty, you can have generations of princes and princesses that are never going to see the crown and will never be king or queen. And a 
it's just what happens is, you know, you're a royal family and you have five or six kids and only the first one winds up as the ruler. But your your other kids are still princes and princesses. And then they have children. So what do you call their children? They're technically still in line for the throne, even though they're likely never going to see it. So those become princes and and princesses. Um, so, you know, it's he might be far, far away from ever having any kind of a throne, but he does have that royal line in him somewhere. Okay. Yeah, I didn't really think about that. I thought they would have a different name after you're so far removed from the crown that you're called like a duke or a count or something. But you could be a few generations down from the king and still be prince or princess. Sometimes, like in in the more Western royalty and England, of course, you see a lot of that. And I think that's probably what, again, we as Americans are most familiar with because we're from uh, England originally. But There's an old saying in Russia that there are more princes and princesses than peasants. You know, was that was an old saying, like, you know, back before they had their big revolution. But you could, you know, throw a stone basically and hit somebody who was a count or countess or prince or princess because they were so prolific in in Russia. So is France one of those where the prince could be super removed? Oh, absolutely. You still have princes and princesses uh, in England, too, that are you know, very removed that they're, you know, second and third cousins of Prince Charles and Prince William. And they still have that title usually, and this is getting a little bit crazy, so I don't know how much we want to go into it, but usually they wind up dropping the Prince or Princess and going with a different title that's more about their day-to-day stuff. You know, they'll go with Earl or Count or Lord or whatever, um, just to avoid all the all the craziness that comes with the Prince and Princess title. Okay, so his ordinary world, the Beast's ordinary world, well, I guess he's not the Beast while he's, <laughs> well, before, but as the Prince, he doesn't necessarily actually rule over anything he just has his castle and his servants maybe usually yeah maybe he has a little bit of land you know maybe that forest around the castle could belong to him that would make sense because you don't usually have a castle unless you also have people to help take care of it so he would need tenants and servants and serfs things like that but probably probably not too big of an area that belonged to him yeah the village is certainly not you know the village isn't under his rule or else they would know that there's a castle out there. <laughs> Doesn't seem like they're aware of him. Yeah, you have to wonder how far the enchantress really stretched her her hand and her spell. So anyway, that is the beast's ordinary world. The next stage of the hero's journey is the call to adventure. And it is exactly how it sounds. It's the moment when the ordinary world, you know, the la la, this is my life. It's the moment when that is interrupted. And for example, it's in The Lord of the Rings when Gandalf shows up at a hobbit's door. It's in Star Wars where the droids drop out of the sky into Luke Skywalker's farm. And in Beauty and the Beast, for the beast... You would say that it's probably the moment when the Enchantress shows up at his doorstep in the form of a beggar. Yeah, that would change your world if you're changing from human to beast. (laughs) (laughs) It would. And again, I said, you know, there are a couple of different ways that you can look at this hero stage with this movie. Uh, Carrie, you you found a different place. Yeah, I I was thinking when I read this, The Hero's Journey, that the call to adventure for the Beast is pretty much when Belle shows up and offers to take her father's place. Yes. See, and that makes more sense in terms of looking at the movie as a whole. The introduction is like the call to romance adventure rather than, you know, I wasn't thinking when he changes into a beast, that that's his call to adventure because he has to learn to love someone. I was thinking of it as when she 
shows up in his life. That's when he's really called to to woo her, to earn her love in return, because that's what the Enchantress wants him to do, to be able to turn back into a human. So I, I was considering that the call to adventure, when the love interest is, is uh, introduced into the story. Yes, I definitely think you could look at it that way. A, a very good story, a well-told story, will have this theme, this cycle in it multiple times and in multiple ways because it engages with multiple people. But yeah, that, that definitely Bell very, very well could be his call to adventure. And with all great stories, after the hero is called to an adventure, what is it that they usually do? They ref- almost refuse the call. It's true. And again, you see this in all the best stories. Um, you you can even go back and look at Bible stories. You know, Jonah, you know, everybody knows the story of Jonah. Even if you're not religious, you've heard about it. This guy is told to go somewhere by God and he says, absolutely not. And he gets on a boat and goes the opposite direction. And that's the refusal of the call. It happens in The Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. It happens in Beauty and the Beast. So how how do you think from where you're saying, if, if Belle is the call to adventure, how does the beast refuse the call? I was thinking it's at that first dinner. He invites her to dinner. Well, he says it's not an invitation, <laughs> but uh, he says, you know, come to dinner. That's not a request. And he's really mean. And then she says, I don't think she gets the chance to respond, does she? No. But uh, he's then we we go and see him in the dining room and he's so nervous and he's talking to mrs potts and lumiere and he's talking about how she's so beautiful just look at me you can tell that he's doubting the possibility of her being able to love him or him being able to earn her love so i i was thinking of that as the refusal of the call to to learn what the enchantress wants him to learn to be selfless and to be loving and to earn love i think that's that moment when he says, look at me. Like, why would someone so beautiful love me? This isn't going to work. I don't think I want to do this kind of a thing. Why should I even try? Is kind of the the mood that he seems to be in. He's He's reluctant and scared about trying to earn her love. I, I agree with you. Exactly. Yes. Uh, The refusal of the call doesn't have to be an outright, no, I'm not going to do it. It can also just be expressing, this is going to be hard. I'm not sure I want to continue with this. It it can just be expressing that uncertainty of what's about to happen. So I I completely agree with that take on it. Uh, If we go back to what I would say, if you looked at the beast's whole life and did this and you said, well, what if it was the beggar woman that was his call to adventure and he refused that, um, then the refusal of the call in that case would be him refusing to let the beggar woman stay in his castle, you know, refusing to let the status quo of his spoiled princely self uh, change any. So again, you can look at this at multiple points and in multiple ways and see this really cool pattern. You're saying if the beggar woman is bringing the call, then her call to adventure would be like just him showing, uh, I don't know what you would call it. She sees that he, it says that the enchantress sees there's no love in his heart. So I think the call for his adventure there is to have love in his heart. So when he refuses to let her in, that's refusing to be a loving person. Is that the idea? That's the call he's 
confusing? Exactly. I would say that becomes a resistance to change because that's another point that the call to adventure can be is a call to change, you know, and the beggar woman showing up and saying, here's a rose, let me stay here. And his refusal to let her in to change is also a way of saying he's refused the call. I will try not to go back and forth so much. I just love the many different ways that you can find this really cool, really psychological way to tell a story in Beauty and the Beast. You can't just write off these movies as a simple animation or oh, it's just a kid's movie because you had people of great talent artistically, creatively coming together and trying to make something that would really resonate with audiences of all ages. And so to write off any Disney movie, I think is, oh, that's a kid's movie is really silly because you can get a whole lot out of this that you wouldn't get out of Saturday morning cartoons. And it might be more wholesome than Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> These days, I would I would completely agree with you. So we have the refusal of the call. So those are the first three stages is, you know, the ordinary life, the call to adventure, and then refusal of the call. So initially, every hero is going to say, I don't think I can do this. If they if they follow this very popular and very basic pattern. The very next scenes that we're going to talk about can come in a different order, but we will try to talk about them in the order um, that Christopher Vogler has on his site, since he's our cool Disney guy who did this. Mm -hmm. So uh, the next stage that comes after refusing the call is usually the person gets to meet with the mentor. And to take from popular media, you see this in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and Star Wars and a uh, hundred different places, you know, those are just the ones that come to mind for modern audiences the most quickly is, uh, you know, the hobbits meeting Gandalf, Luke meeting Obi-Wan or Yoda. You know, there are these moments when the person who you're following suddenly meets someone who is more wise, more worldly, more seasoned, somebody who just they have a little bit of wisdom and guidance to offer. And the beast doesn't have just one mentor, I would say. He's kind of surrounded by mentors. Yeah, I was definitely seeing this as Mrs. Potts and Lumiere and sometimes Cogsworth, but not so much Cogsworth. I think Lumiere kind of sees himself as the romance expert. So he's giving his advice. And Mrs. Potts, I don't know how many cups she has as children, but I think she's very experienced in love. <laughs> well, they both know him very well, too. They've been with him, you know, as far as we know, forever. They've been cursed with him. So they obviously know him well enough to have been in the castle at that moment when his life fell apart. Yeah, definitely people that he looks up to and he's close to. Right. People who understand him. As far as Cogsworth goes, he is definitely some comedic relief thrown in there. But you can also have sometimes in stories an unreliable mentor. So someone who might be trying to set the hero on the right path or trying to make the hero think they're going the right way when this person is truly completely unreliable. They either don't know what they're doing or they're purposely trying to sabotage your hero. In this case, I think Cogsworth is just unreliable in that he has no clue what to say or do to help the beast out in this situation. Yeah, I guess thinking about the one famous line that he has that's kind of a mentorish line, the one scene with Cogsworth where he's trying to be a mentor, 
that's really his famous line is when the beast asks, you know, what can I do for Bell? I want to do something special. And he says that line about um, chocolates, promises you don't intend to keep. <laughs> and that's definitely, definitely not a very helpful mentor piece of advice. <laughs> it doesn't play out well. No, poor Cogsworth. He tries. And we'll talk about him a little bit, too, when we talk about Bell, because he tries. Poor guy. I think he's just he's just not there. But the next stage that comes usually after meeting with the mentor, or those two can flip a little bit, is called crossing the threshold. And if you divide a play into three acts, like Shakespeare and, and other really cool things that you watch on stage, they're divided usually into three acts. Act one, where all the introduction stuff happens. Act two, where the meat of the story is. And act three, which is usually very short and delivers your end. So the crossing the threshold would be the end of act one is the best way to put it. It's when you've gotten all your introductory stuff out of the way, you've introduced the people and the problems, and now your hero has to act. He has to accept what's going on in his life. He has to accept the call to adventure. And so he's going to cross that threshold into the unknown. So where would you say this happens for the beast? I think this is really the first moment where the beast gets a taste of who Belle is at her door when she's refusing to come to dinner that first night. <laughs> I think this is really his moment where it's like, it's not just an idea that he has to find a girl and win her love. He's finally at the point where he's being forced to interact with this girl and she is tricky <laughs> and she is going to be a challenge. I think that's, that's the moment where they're at the door and she's saying she doesn't want to come and He's got Lumiere and Mrs. Potts saying that he needs to be nice and gentlemanly, and he's trying. You can see him trying, but at the same time, you see his hair, like, coming up because he's angry. <laughs> uh, you know, please come to dinner. It would please me very much if you would come. And she says, I'm not hungry. I'm not coming. And he's like, go ahead and starve. And I love that scene. It is the best. <laughs> but I think this is that's really his moment where he's crossing the threshold into, okay, I'm now going to have to woo this woman and she is going to be hard for me to woo. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I love those scenes. I love it. If I was going to be very nitpicky with this, which it's a podcast, I can do whatever I want, right? <laughs> I would say that's probably more like the beast getting his toe across the threshold. He's starting to see what this is going to take. Because another aspect of the hero's journey that I haven't mentioned yet on this podcast is that there is a, usually, usually there is an internal journey going on at the same time. And when you're at the point of crossing the threshold, which is the physical, the outside, everything that the reader or watcher is noticing, the inner workings of the character are supposed to be committing to change. And that's kind of a little extra that you can add in to more complex stories like Beauty and the Beast. And so while he is attempting polite behavior, he's thinking about it. He sees this is going to be a lot of work. He hasn't really changed yet. His temper has still gotten the better of him in that moment. I mean, go ahead and starve. That does yeah. not yeah, that does not sound like somebody who's ready to change for this girl yet. But I think 
I think he's looking over the threshold, maybe. You know, he's seeing what's ahead, and it's going to be hard, like you said. I would say when he really does try to cross the threshold, it's an extension of this moment. It's during the courtship scene. It's after the wolf battle. It's when... You know, he finally reaches out to her in a way that isn't just, I want you to do what I want you to do, but it's saying thank you and you're welcome and the library. So I would say that the crossing the threshold for the beast probably extends out and encompasses a lot of different scenes because the poor guy, this is a long journey for him. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe it would be more like the the next argument that they have after the wolf fight scene is uh, when they have that argument while she's cleaning his arm. It's like, well, if you hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have done that. And then at the end of that argument, they say, thank you and you're welcome. And that could be the crossing of, okay, they're actually not attempting to be polite, but they've resolved that argument and they're beginning to be polite and civil. And that's kind of the opening up of that whole romance montage. They, they finally say, thank you, and you're welcome. And that's that sounds kind of like what you're talking about, the crossing, the threshold, if I'm understanding it right. Yes, yes. And like like I said, I think your take on it, you know, is, is the beginning of that. Like I said too earlier, is that the these some of these stages, some of these bits and pieces can be mixed up just a little bit or occur multiple times. The 12-step model is, is a very simplistic model, but it, it gives you all the elements and then the storyteller can mix them up just a little bit, you know, add a dash of this and two sprinkles of that, and then they get a really good story as long as they keep it close, close to the outline. So I do think that is the beginning of the beast stepping over the threshold. Now, uh, again, a place where you can mix and mingle and something we may have already talked about a, a little bit is another stage, uh, another step in this hero's journey is called Tests, allies, and enemies. And this is kind of when the beast, or any hero for that matter, is out and they're on this adventure now and they have to figure out, okay, who is going to help me? Who is my friend? And who is not helping me at all? And the beast hasn't even... But I'm going to touch on enemies for just a second because we've talked a little bit about his mentors and his allies and Bell and all the castle people. But the Beast hasn't met his enemy yet. Now, when we are watching the movie, we're getting to go back and forth between Gaston and what's happening at the castle, you know, between Maurice and Gaston and the castle. And so while Bell and Beast have absolutely no idea that they've got an enemy slowly starting to, you know, smolder a little bit away from the castle, the audience is treated to knowing that there is an enemy out there and the enemy is Gaston. True. I never really thought about that. He doesn't know anything about Gaston, like the whole movie. And then he's just, you know, here you go, fight this man who's competing for Belle that you didn't even know. <laughs> and Gaston even mentions it like the Beast should know. Like, why would you think she would want you when she has someone like me? And the Beast has this whole time had no idea that Gaston even existed or wanted Belle. Exactly. And if you think about ancient stories, if we go back to what Joseph Campbell, the father of the monomyth, you know, the, the man who started writing the books about this. If we go back and we look at the stories that he was talking about, the ancient myths, I mean, it was pretty obvious to Hercules that he had, you know, an enemy to fight. It was pretty obvious to, you know, 
people in the Bible to David and that he had Goliath and very obvious, but modern audiences don't need to have a very clear linear view of things because we have movies, you know, we're used to flashbacks and we're used to cutaway scenes. You don't have to get us from point A to point Z by telling us every letter of the alphabet, you know, you can skip around with modern audiences. And that is what we have going on here. You know, Beauty and the Beast, the film is sticking with this order of operations, we'll call it this order of things, but our poor beast doesn't know it the way our audience knows it. The audience is getting treated to every single step and the poor beast has to skip this and the beast doesn't find out about his enemies until almost the very end of his story. Mm-hmm. I thought that was cool. We'll go on. We've discussed about half of what is in the hero cycle. The next stage on the hero's journey for the beast and for anyone on this magical journey of heroes, is called The Approach. Now, the loose interpretation of that that Vogler gives us is that The Approach is the point when the hero and their newfound allies, friends, mentors, you know, the people who they're with, prepare for major changes to their special world. And I I don't think I mentioned this special world before, but once you leave the ordinary world that we talked about in the very beginning, once you cross that threshold, you are now in the special world. And so, you know, the Beast and Belle have come to know each other. They're friends now. Things are going really well. And now we've hit this stage called the approach. So they've made this special world, but now there's going to be another major change. And again, I think you can look at the approach here from, from two different ways. When I was first thinking about this, I saw the approach of changing the special world to the ballroom scene because they've gone from friends now to something more possibly maybe the beast hopes and so that's where i saw the approach coming in but you had a little bit of a different take on the approach can you tell me what your take on that was so to me i was thinking this part was just after the ballroom scene basically from the moment that bell leaves the beast and he lets her go till till that point when Gaston and the villagers are coming to his door and he says, let them come. I saw that as the approach to the the big battle between Beast and Gaston. I was thinking that is the next part of the journey where he's going to go through the ordeal. So that's what I was taking as the approach to that part is he lets go of Belle and, and he has his enemies coming. He has his allies, his servants, getting ready to meet these these villagers that are coming to attack the beast and everyone else that's in his castle. Right. See, I can completely see that here. Yeah. I don't know how well that really makes sense. I was kind of iffy on this approach part. I was like, I don't know if I understand this part as well, because it says it's the hero and his allies preparing for a major challenge. So I was thinking, okay, their major challenge is the villagers coming to attack. That was my thinking. Yep. Completely understandable. It sounds like what we've done is you you have condensed the last one, two, three, four, five. You've condensed the last six steps very tightly into the very end of the, of the movie, uh, which you, you can, <laughs> yeah. yeah, which totally makes sense. You totally can do it. Like I said, this is a very versatile and very 
easy to chop up and use method of, of telling a story. And it works. It works the way you've seen it. So let's go ahead and talk through the approach um, and the next few things as you've seen it. And then if we have time, maybe we'll talk about how I saw it. But let's go ahead and talk about the approach as you see it. So for you, the approach happens when there's going to be this big change. So after the ballroom, after everybody's been happy, now Bella's going to leave. And that is the beginning of the beast approach because that sets into action a whole bunch of of problems and changes for the beast to deal with and that's when his allies his his friends all have to come together to confront this challenge which is basically the mob showing up on their front door right yeah totally works there there is no right or wrong between your your take on this and mine and this is why i love it i love deeper studies of literature and film because you can look at it from different perspectives and you can you know pick out well here is where i see this happening and it works it's not wrong because the person next to you can say oh well this is where i saw it happening and it's so cool i'm i'm the biggest english and literature nerd ever so this is so cool. Um, so the approach happens and things are about to change. It's going to be big. After the approach. So if you if you picture this in your mind, you've got a group of people and their friends, their allies. They've crossed this threshold. They're in this really cool special world. And now as they're walking through this special world, they're approaching something else. You, know, you, have, you have to think of it really as almost a physical journey, even though the beast never goes anywhere. If you picture a physical journey, it usually makes more sense. So they can see this bad thing coming and they're getting closer to it. Now, after they approach this bad thing comes the stage called the ordeal. And this is when the hero has to confront what they have been approaching. You know, this is when they confront a huge challenge. And I think we all know what this challenge is for the beast. Or do we? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking, I said it was that his ordeal is, you know, the villagers and the battle. But I think the real context that I put it in is because I'm like a big romance person and that's kind of what I do with the LDS dating podcast is I think about relationships and I analyze them and I help people work through problems and stuff. So that's kind of my frame of mind when I watch Beauty and the Beast or any kind of romantic movie. So I was thinking of it as like his ordeal is kind of the battle that's going to happen but mostly it's kind of more of an inward battle of romance. So I kind of, the ordeal kind of all happens at the same time in two different parts where it's the mob coming, the physical threat that he has to overcome. But at that same moment, he's also got the threat of loneliness and losing Belle. And that's happening at that same moment, especially as he's fighting Gaston and everything. So I'd say his... His ordeal is lo losing Belle is part of his ordeal. And this fight with Gaston is part of his ordeal as well. Yes. Yes. No, I completely agree with that. That's perfect. Because his ordeal is taking place on at least two different levels, the emotional and the physical. You know, he's confronting an ordeal of the heart. And, you know, there's a guy coming at me with a knife. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So the, the beast has a huge moment of crazy, you know, where there's a lot going on for him. And it's really cool. Let me let me read just a little a little piece of what Bogler says. He says that what usually happens during the ordeal is the hero confronts death or faces their greatest fear. And out of that moment of death or fear will come a new light. And that leads perfectly into 
the next stage, which you would think is the final stage, but it's not. This next stage is called the reward. And this is when the hero faces death. Sometimes they literally die. If you look at the older stories, um, like let's go back and talk about the legend of Um, I'm drawing a blank. But if you go back and you look at some of the Greek mythology, a lot of characters in Greek mythology have to descend to the underworld. They basically die. And it's while they're in the underworld that they find their reward. So they do. They have to die or face death to get their reward. And that is exactly what's happening with our beast. Yeah. Like in uh, Hercules, when he goes down to the underworld, I'm thinking of, I think it's Disney. Is Disney the one who does the animated Hercules or is it somebody else? It's Disney. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So when Hercules has to go down to the underworld, he does almost physically die. He's turning into that old, shrivelly, pruny old man when he goes down to retrieve Megara's soul. Would that be his moment? Yes, that is that is definitely his moment. And again, that is Disney after Christopher Vogler has come through with his adaptation of the of the hero's journey. Disney took that and they used it so well in their retelling of Hercules. And in many Greek myths, in many in many myths of many cultures, you see that. Let's go back to the Jonah uh, analogy, the Jonah story. Jonah descends to death. You know, he has his moment of basically dying when he's in the belly of a whale. You know, he's in there for three days. He has effectively died. He has been buried by water and entombed in a whale. Okay, so that's a very symbolic death, even though he didn't, you know, actually really die. That's a very symbolic death. And Mm -hmm. Joseph Campbell, he's, you know, I don't think he's a religious man. So he often compared the story of Christ to this hero's journey as well. And he says, you have Christ, Jesus Christ, who proclaims to be the son of God dying and he's dead for three days. But after he dies, he gets this reward, which is the stage we're talking about. And the reward is eternal life, salvation, you know, giving this great gift to all mankind. And you see that in, in most really awesome stories is that moment where you go from death, the ordeal to the reward. We brought religion into it just a little bit there, but it's it's really cool to see how this story of death having to be overcome for life to continue and for life to be better uh, can be found anywhere. It can be found in scripture. It can be found in mythology. It can be found in beauty and the beast because it's something that people psychologically, I would say, yearn for. They want to overcome their fear or death to get to this this awesome reward stage of their story. And so it plays out really well in fiction too. So in Beauty and the Beast, I can kind of see that if if you're thinking about it in that confronts death kind of way or that moment of new life, then it could kind of be twice that I'm thinking of in this in this last big scene with Gaston. I mean, you can kind of see that the beast is dead inside like that he's not fighting back and he just let Gaston hit him with that first arrow when the their fight scene begins he's not planning to fight at all because he's just totally heartbroken and he doesn't care if he lives or dies so I think that's kind of like one point where it's like he's already dead inside because Belle left him and he thinks he's gonna be a beast forever and not have her love forever that could be one like an inner death and his new life then would be when he sees Belle is back. Right. So that could be, I see that as one. And then there's obviously, you know, he does, I think he dies. Yes. Or, yeah. Because they have like the whole, 
the hand falling in slow motion. That <laughs> the, typical. <laughs> the typical Disney animated death. No, no, yes. you're right. And let's <laughs> let's talk about these last few stages really, really quickly, because we have the ordeal that we just mentioned, which is facing death, which I agree with you completely. There's the emotional death of maybe Belle never comes back and the physical threat of Gaston. Then you have the reward, which for the beast is he initially conquers Gaston and Belle is back and his whole world lights up. You know, he's he's got Belle. She's back. She cares. She came. She didn't send this angry mob to his door. She's here to save him. And so that's his reward. But then you have three stages left. And the three stages are called the road bat, the resurrection, and return with the elixir. So the way I see these fitting in um, here, let's let's discuss very briefly. That way we don't take up anybody's time on Crazy Beauty and the Beast thoughts. But the road back usually is when you've got that moment of hooray we've got the treasure we've we can do this now we just have to get home okay so it's like when luke rescues princess leia yay we've got the treasure we've got the princess we've got what we came for it's like when frodo in lord of the rings drops the ring finally into the fire and yay we did it we did what we came for we came to do we completed this task yay and you think we could all end happily ever after right at this moment but no there's more um and that's where the resurrection comes in in order to resurrect or to come back from something you have to die and so this is where the complete death happens not just the facing of death not just the fear of death but the actual death and the beast i would say actually dies he has the road back he has that moment you know i beat gaston yay bell is back yay and then he dies stabbed in the side and it's it's a very sad moment i remember being a little girl like i said this is the first movie i can remember seeing in a movie theater i remember being a little girl and being struck so deeply in that moment with tears in my eyes and six years old you know you hope that it's going to end happily ever after but you're a little kid and you're sitting there and you suddenly don't know you don't know if it's going to end happily ever after and it's this moment that the road back moment in most movies and books and television shows and ancient stories where your audience has to be the most emotionally invested, whether you're telling a story around a campfire or they're watching this in, you know, IMAX 3D. This this is the moment where you have to be invested in what's happening. And so, you know, it's the, oh no, what's going to happen in Star Wars? It's when they don't know if they're going to be able to destroy the Death Star. You know, in the first episode of Star Wars, it's the, you know, everybody's been shot down by Darth Vader and Luke's the only one left and he's trying to go down the, the way. What's he going to do? In The Lord of the Rings, it's where Frodo and Sam have dropped the ring and they're laying on that mountain. I'm talking about the film, not the book, but they're laying on that mountain and there's lava all around them and you think, are they going to die? You know, they did what they were supposed to do, but are they are they going to die now? And in romances, it's that moment where the hero and the heroine have fallen out and they've come back together and you think it might end happily ever after, but you're not sure because they're both just standing looking at each other in the rain. You know, it's like, are they going to take that last step and say, I'm sorry and get back together and have the happily ever after? It's it's the most pivotal, intense, emotional point in any movie because you've gone on this journey. And now you have to get the hero to their happily ever after. Are they going to make it? I'm passionate about this. Sorry. Everyone is. You said everyone's the most emotionally <laughs> involved during this road back. 
It, it really is true. You have to get this moment where everybody wants to know what's going to happen. Are we going to get the fulfillment that we expect? You know, you've taken me on this long, awful journey of terribleness and highs and lows. And what are you going to leave me with? And this is why I don't like sad endings to any movie or book is because once you've got somebody this emotionally invested, if you end on a bad note, you ruin their whole day. <laughs> so, so you've got the road back and then you get the resurrection. And it's awesome how they did this with Beauty and the Beast, because you're not sure that, you know, the Beast is is going to make it during this last moment, these last stages. So I we have notes that we shared a little bit before we started this podcast. And I love what Carrie wrote in here, something like love, 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 crying. <laughs> you know, it's obviously, it's it's a moment where you're emotionally involved. So, I mean, what, as a storyteller, this, this makes total sense to have this pivotal scene. So what do you think about this pivotal scene, Carrie? About the whole theme? No, the, the resurrection moment where you have the beast, he's definitely dying and dead. I mean, how, how does, how does that, <laughs> I'm not sure if we can go into it any more deeply, but do you have anything you'd like to share about that moment? Yeah, I mean, uh, the way that they described the stage, uh, they said that, and tell me his name again, the person who wrote the memo. Vogler, Christopher Vogler. Christopher Vogler described it as, this is, uh, by the hero's action, the polarities that were in conflict at the beginning are finally resolved. So I was thinking, you know, this is that the, the conflict was that the beast was spoiled and selfish and he had no love in his heart. And now we're at this climactic point where he's essentially given his life because he loved Belle, because he turned his back on Gaston, and that's how Gaston has stabbed him and killed him. And he's dying, and he's like, at least I got to see you one last time. And I just love this moment. It makes me cry. <laughs> I'm trying not to cry right now, picturing it. It's like this moment of, you know, I don't even care if I'm dead because... I know that you love me. And like you said, he knows now that the mob wasn't sent by Belle. You know, they show up with the mirror he gave her. And I'm sure that's what he thought. Like, oh, he, she sent a mob to kill me. So I'm going to let them kill me. And now we're at this moment where he knows that she loves him and he loves her. And he's just happy he saw her again before dying. And that's all that matters. And uh, it's that resurrection moment. I mean, obviously you have a physical resurrection that happens happens right after this with the famous light from the toes and everything <laughs> but i feel like this is really his his what do you call it internal emotional characteristic resurrection where he has become this person full of love and that's all that really matters to him or to his life and i think that's a beautiful message that's taught like you said it's not just this fluffy romantic scene it can be taken as this this uh it can be taken as a lesson to us that what really matters to us in life is our loved ones and those moments that we know that they love us and we love them are all that we really need before we pass on to the next life so yeah that's why i wrote love 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 
<laughs> crying, lots of tears. No, yes, I completely understand. And this doesn't just happen in romantic movies. You know, that's what we're talking about a lot because we're girls. And I've tried to talk about Star Wars and Lord of the Rings a little bit. But another Disney movie, since we're talking about Disney stuff, where this is done so well is Brave at that moment where the mother might be a bear forever. You Do you remember at the very end of Brave, her daughter's done everything she can do. I'm not going to say her name because I'll slaughter it. Um, but, you know, the, the queen is going to be a bear forever. And the daughter is devastated. And the king is devastated. And everyone around here finally realizes, oh my goodness, that bear really is the queen. And now she's going to be a bear forever. And, you know, so it's not just romance. Um, it's the moment in... Uh, like I said, the, the Lord of the Rings, too, where you're not sure what's going to happen now. You know, the hero, the hero is gone. The hero's, you know, in peril. Um, and then you have that resurrection and things, things are, are looking really bad. And then the resurrection leaks over into the final stage that's called Return with the Elixir. And when I think about this, I always think about um, the last Indiana Jones movie where Sean Connery is playing his father and all these horrible things have happened and he's practically dead. And Indiana Jones, you know, comes in with the uh, with the magic cup of magic life-giving water and, and it's the elixir that, that saves his dad. And in this case, the Return with the Elixir moment is when Belle says, I love you. That is the elixir. That is the magic that spurs the resurrection um, of the beast, where he comes back to life. And not only does he come back to life, but he becomes a man again, and he's human. And all the little servants are turned back from things into people. And you get your happily ever after moment in the return with the elixir. It's that, it's that magic potion that makes everything better. Yeah, I was kind of confused by this return with the elect part. So I don't know if I have anything to add. <laughs> okay. Seems, it seems like it is just kind of the whatever the last few minutes of your story is where it's like the happy ending because it was referring earlier to an, a to a treasure and then it's kind of switches in this last step to saying elixir and I'm like okay is that not the treasure <laughs> well the treasure in this case it, it can be both I will say it can be both and in this case I would say it is kind of too because the treasure is Belle's love for the beast you know when he gets when he gets the reward when he's on that that part of the journey um he has he has Belle. He's happy. He, she's here. Um, and then the elixir would be truly having her where it's not just, oh, yay, Belle's back. She she might like me, but it's she loves me and her love saved. So the treasure I, and the elixir can be one and the same. But I think a good way to describe it is the treasure is more shallow, I guess. Less There's less depth and importance to just the treasure, but the treasure can become the elixir, the the life-changing and life-giving piece of the story. So, yay, Belle's back. That's my reward. That's the treasure. But then Belle loves me. That's that's the happily ever after moment. That's the transformation. Okay. Yeah. All right. Then I was totally off then when I made my guess that like this is the that last minute of I wrote that I thought it was embracing his servants and like rejoicing that the curse was gone. I was thinking maybe the curse being gone was like their elixir, which is a result of Belle's love. Right. It's kind of like intertwined with, you know, her love and the curse. You know, he had to make not make someone fall in love with him, but <laughs> oh, yeah, he had yeah. to he had to love someone and have them love him in return to break the curse. So it's kind of like intertwined as the same thing. 
Oh, totally. Was that? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. And we, I mentioned it once or twice. I'm trying not to go too crazy because honestly, you could spend days talking about this stuff. And as an English major back in college, I did. I spent days and days doing this. But when you go back and talk about the inner hero's journey, you know, the stuff that's going on inside the hero versus what the audience is seeing, this is also called the mastery moment. And if we go all the way back to the beginning of what the problem was, the problem was that the beast could love no one else. And if to be at the final stage of the journey, you must have mastery over what caused the problem to begin with. The beast has come there. He's He has mastery over his, over his heart. He has mastery over the ability to love and to care for others and to not always be thinking of himself first. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. Like, it's not even just that he has to find one person to love, but his real problem was that he wasn't loving towards even, you know, the beggar woman who was in the bitter cold. So this moment really shows that, like, he loves his servants. He, I think he even hugs Belle's father. I'm not sure. I know he hugs, like, Mrs. Potts and, and Cogsworth and stuff, but it is showing definitely that he loves more than just Belle. That's for sure. Yeah, he has mastery over his selfishness and his arrogance, I think, too, is he's you know, by a prince reaching out and hugging somebody who is a lowly servant. I think about that, too. That takes a lot of humility. And, you know, it's it's a total lack of pride. He's standing there without shoes on in, you know, basically what would be considered back then his underwear, you know, because he's got pants on, but really they wore layers upon layers of clothing back then. So he's standing there basically in his underwear, hugging everybody and happy to see everyone. It's not just a, oh, look at me. I'm back to being the handsome prince. But it's, we're all back we we were on this awful journey together and we're all back mm-hmm. yay yay we're all back <laughs> yeah and so like i said you could go on and on about the stuff you could discuss it in days and in more depth and that's why i love the whole minute by minute podcast idea because you can take a look and slow down and dissect things and we just did the an overview of the hero's journey and the stages of the hero's journey about this and i think we may come in and just just about an hour or under an hour. The movie is 191 minutes long, so or something like that. I don't know how long the movie is. The movie's long, but we've almost spent as much time just talking about the hero's journey. And you can go as crazy with this as you want. You can make it as simplistic as you want, but there are very clear stages, and we've hit all of them for the beast. And so there's a very good argument, too, I would say, that he is, if not the protagonist of the story, a protagonist. This is just as much about the beast as it is about Belle. Yeah, and I really never, ever thought about it this way until me and you started talking about doing this special podcast episode for the Beauty and the Beastly Minute. I never thought about, like, there being a hero in this story, you know? I always thought of it as just, you know, it's kind of a romance, and there's this curse, and they have funny arguments, and, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I never have thought about something as this is a story with a plot and they've tried to give it different steps and elements and you know this is someone's job that they made this movie i think it took two or three years something like that Mm -hmm. and it's like they they think about all of these little nuances and psychologically what the audience needs to go through and what we need to watch the protagonist go through and i just never thought of it this way as like the beast is our protagonist and he needs to go through a journey and how emotionally involved 
they have to make us and they, we go through these steps and all these different parts have to be created and i've just never thought of it this way and it's so it's so amazing that they do this and you just watch it as a kid and you're like oh that's wonderful and i love that movie <laughs> <laughs> well see and and that's where you go back to joseph campbell and his original book where he talked about all of this was called the hero with a thousand faces and he talks about in his book i don't have it sitting right in front of me so i'm paraphrasing um but he talks about in his book that the reason that little children can remember you know, the fairy tales, the stories. And he's talking about kids, you know, pre-Disney when he wrote this book. He's talking about, you know, children centuries ago sitting and listening to their grandmothers tell them these stories. Uh, but the reason that children retain this and the reason that it's, it's still entertaining for adults to hear these stories is because it is so deep and psychological and it does touch us on many different levels. And one of the things that he says in his book is that all of us perceive ourselves as being on a journey we do believe we are the heroes of our own story. And so as a kid, if you're a little kid and you're watching these Disney movies and you're seeing good guys and bad guys mm -hmm. and and you're seeing the journey that all these different people have to go through, it really becomes more than just a, you know, it's not the three little pigs, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's deep and meaningful for a kid. I mean, my daughter, when she saw Frozen, she became Elsa forever. She did not become Anna because Anna's journey is not quite as psychologically deep as Elsa's, but she, she became that, that person who, okay, somebody might not understand me, but I understand me and I'm okay with it. And that's kind of what you've gotten Beauty and the Beast too for that generation of kids who watched that and grew up. It's, I may not be like anybody else, but that's okay because somebody out there is going to be my friend and love me. And, you know, I can still have these cool adventures and make these friends. And Disney just, Disney knows how to do it. I tell you, they reach out and they grab you, whether you're a kid or an adult. And they say, you know, look at this poor person who doesn't fit in. You're just like them. But look, you can be cool too. <laughs> and that really is, I think, most, most kids and even adults fear that they are not like everybody else or they might not be loved or liked. And Disney shows us that, no, I mean, look, if, if this beast can get it, if this mermaid with a tail can do it, so can you. That's so true. I think about this in, uh, in the perspective of me helping people with dating advice I've had I don't know how many people like I've helped really personally but at least half a dozen a dozen people that I've talked to one-on-one -on -one and I help it seems like their main fear is kind of like that they won't be loved and that it won't happen for them and I've never thought about putting it in this kind of a perspective but I could say you know look at these stories from fairy tales look at the Disney princesses their lives totally turn around in the matter of days sometimes <laughs> like yeah. I, I feel like that would really give people hope like okay what romances are you looking at that you want your life to be like and how fast did their life turn around to be romantic and in this case in Beauty and the Beast I think they say it's supposed to be set from, it's from fall to spring. Mm -hmm. So in the time frame of three, three seasons, they have fallen in love and he turns back into a human and life <laughs> is going to be wonderful, at least until the French Revolution. Right. So, <laughs> so, I mean, I feel like that would be something I might end up using now in my in my dating coaching from now on, like, okay, <laughs> you might not have romance now, but Belle and Be Beauty and the Beast got it in, you know, six, seven months. <laughs> so no. so it, it might be just around the corner. It could happen in a 
in a uh, what was a Little Mermaid's time frame? She had three days. Three days, yeah. Three days with Prince Eric. So yeah, like the Little Mermaid did it in three days, and yep. I kind of I met my husband, and we got engaged after a month and a half. So it's like your life can turn around so unbelievably fast. It you can. Think you're gonna be alone forever, right? And then you meet the person you're gonna be with forever. This is true. It can turn around really fast. And sometimes, though, I mean, you have to look at it from the beast perspective, too. How long was he in that castle waiting for Belle? You know, sometimes you just have to be patient. (laughs) So true. From his perspective, it was a lot longer. (laughs) Yes. I mean, no wonder he was impatient for the, to get the ball rolling with that first dinner. You know, it's not a request. You're going to come to dinner. We're going to fall in love and this is going to be over, you know, because he's been in there for (laughs) a good 10 years about, you know, so, um, Yeah, definitely. You can look at these stories, you know, these Disney stories that are basically, you know, retellings of of old stories that, you know, grandmothers and grandfathers used to sit and tell their children and grandchildren. And um, they've been renewed for our generation. You know, they're media savvy now. (laughs) But you can really look at these old stories and draw a lot of parallels to your own life. And that's the intention of these old stories that Disney has revamped for us. The intention of the stories was to give people a pattern for living their life. It was to give them morals. It was to show them this is how you should behave in our society. And I'll just throw this little quick tidbit in and then we should probably probably clo- close for the day. But um, they, they believe, when I say they, I mean literary scholars in France, believe that one of the reasons Beauty and the Beast developed in the French court, because it was not a peasant story. It wasn't one for, you know, grandma who lived in the mud hut to tell. This was a story for the French court. And um, it's believed that it was developed to help um, the young women who were being forced into arranged marriages at that time period, who were being put into political alliances. This story was saying, you know what, you might not like this guy at first, but make the best out of it because he could be the most wonderful man out there for you. And, you know, we don't really like arranged marriages in this day and age, but it's cool to think that There was a story, a myth um, set up around that real life situation that people were experiencing um, to help them cope with the real life experience. So I love fairy tales. Well, and it wasn't just like a created fairy tale, though, either, was it? Because I saw a documentary about the origins of Beauty and the Beast fairy tale. And there was like a a Hispanic man, I think they said, that they had in France who he had that disease where you're covered in hair. And they didn't know if he was human, but he, you know, walked like a human, looked like a human. Yes. He was very hairy. And they set him up to be a nobleman and gave him education. And they gave him a wife and that was an arranged marriage. And they kind of did it as an experiment to say like, hey, here's a woman. Let's see if your children are hairy monsters or not. (laughs) Oh, I could I could. This is crazy. Yeah, I could go on and on about that. Yeah, he was in Spain and he stayed in Spain. The only reason the French knew about him was the Spanish court thought this was so cool that they had portraits made of this guy and sent to all the heads of Europe. You know, so Spain was showing off, hey, look at this guy that we found. But yeah, it is, it's such an amazing story. There's a documentary on it. It was on Netflix for a little while, but I remember the man's first name is Pedro. His wife's name was Catherine, and it was an arranged marriage, but by all accounts, they fell deeply in love with each other. So yes, this is based, you know, this is, this is based on a true story. It's so cool. Yeah. So it wasn't just like, uh, hey, we're making up this story for the court. That way women will, you know, be okay with arranged marriages. It was kind of, you know, here's a story of a woman who was arranged. Her marriage was arranged and it was to someone that, you know, people thought was a beast. (laughs) 
and they fell in love. So it is a true story. Yeah, except for the part about turning back into a prince. <laughs> except uh, for that. Well, kind of, in a way, because he wasn't really nobility in the first place, and they said that they educated him like a gentleman. So he wasn't like noble noble, but he was treated like a noble just in the way of education, at least. Yeah, at least their, their story is is really sad and really happy at the same time. But yeah, that's, that documentary, ugh. people, yeah. you have to go watch that documentary. I don't remember what it's called. <laughs> I feel we'll, like I should we'll know find what it's it. called. We'll find it and yeah. we'll, we'll say something about it in the notes. So, but it is, it is an amazing story and oh, I love it. It's so cool. Um, I was going to say in the documentary, I felt really bad for them because their their life is really just this experiment and this plaything to everyone else. And all of their children, half of their children were born hairy and half of them were born normal with the normal amount of hair. And basically all their children who were born with this hairy disorder were sold to people as like pets and playthings kind of a thing. Right. And it was really sad. Yeah, really sad. And at the time, you know, everybody was Catholic. The children who were born with the hairy problem. I wish I'm so sorry if anybody is listening who knows what this is called. We cannot remember it at the moment. But the children who were born with this um, genetic disease, they were never baptized. They were not allowed to be baptized because they didn't know for sure if they were human or not. And so these children you know, grew up and lived their lives not knowing whether or not they had a, an immortal soul and not, you know, and if they did, you know, they had never been baptized. So they were pretty sure they, you know, weren't going to make it. So that would be an awful cloud to live your life under in this world of Catholicism. But we digress greatly. <laughs> All right. So in summary, today we discussed the beast and his heroic journey through these different stages and archetypes that were laid down by the great Christopher Vogler, who we now know influenced a great deal at Disney and how Disney tells stories. Next time, we will discuss Belle and her trip down the path of the hero and probably touch on a few other interesting subjects while we're at it because we can't keep to one subject. But this was so much fun. Thank you. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm Sally. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm Carrie. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Bye. See you next time. Keeping your bones.